From Megacon Orlando, the science of NASA's next moon mission. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is set to take the next giant leap when it comes to lunar exploration. The agency's Artemis missions aim to return humans to the moon in the 2020s, and scientists are really excited about what they might discover while there. And the science doesn't stop at the moon. NASA plans to take what it learns from a lunar exploration and head even deeper into our solar system by sending more missions to Mars. So what can we learn from human missions to the moon, and why are these lunar explorations so important to the future of deep space? exploration. From the Megacon Orlando convention floor, we'll hear from University of Central Florida physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell about the science of lunar exploration. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. NASA plans to roll its next moon rocket, SLS, to a launch pad at Kennedy Space Center next month with a planned dress rehearsal of the launch at the end of June. If all goes well, this first lunar mission for NASA's Artemis program could launch by the end of the year, an uncrewed mission around the moon and back. The following mission, Artemis 2, will take astronauts to lunar orbit, followed by Artemis 3, a mission to the lunar surface with astronauts. But this won't just be a mission to plant a flag on the moon. NASA has outlined a deep science agenda while there, and scientists are really excited about what they might find. On May 22nd, Are We There Yet? headed out to Megacon Orlando, a massive convention for comic book and sci-fi fans. We spoke with University of Central Florida physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell about the science of lunar exploration. Here's part of that conversation. Addie Dove kicks off the conversation describing NASA's Artemis program. Uh, well, so Artemis was the sister of Apollo. Okay. Um, so in uh, mythology, right, Artemis is the sister of Apollo. So Artemis was chosen as a name because it's our next lunar... So it's our next missions to the moon. With people. With people. With people. Yeah. And this is the first time in more than 50 years people will actually be going to the lunar surface, right? Yeah, sadly. I mean, when I was a kid, I'm old enough. I'm over <laughs> 50. Uh, so I saw the first people walking on the moon and uh, thought, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. I've already aged out <laughs> before, you know, even the next attempts are going. There. I think I might have aged out, too, yeah, but uh, yeah. we, we might be too old. We're if right it weren't the for the age, I'd totally cusp. be in. That's the only reason. <laughs> that, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, but, but this isn't going to be like we just get to the moon, plant another flag and say, hey, here we are. We did this, right? What, what, what are some of the purposes of us going? Yeah, so hopefully not. I say um, us, like us collectively going. But, but, it might yeah. be us. we got to record a podcast <laughs> on the moon sometime. There we go. Um, so, yeah, so the, the idea is that it won't be just boot prints and flags, right? They'll actually sort of set up a long-term lunar base at the mm-hmm. moon. Um, and this will be through a series of sort of building up. So the first couple missions will be sort of going there and be exploratory. Um, but then they'll start actually sending some infrastructure and things to be able to build up a base on the moon. And it'll probably be at the lunar south polar region. Mm-hmm. Um, Which has a lot of advantages. And the moon itself has a lot of advantages for having a more permanent human presence in space over low Earth orbit, which is where we've been hanging out mm-hmm. for the last 30 years or so, because low Earth orbit is not long-term stable, and the moon is long-term stable. So mm-hmm. you can... For another billion or yeah, six, we three got, Give or take. Yeah, we, 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 we won't age out of that. Yeah, right? We're yeah, not yeah. going to age out of the moon, <laughs> and the great thing about the moon is a nice, stable platform. So you can go there, you can... Like, well, if we wanted to, we could go back to those Apollo 11, 12 mm-hmm. sites, and our equipment would still be there, and you could get it, so... You Might be a little dusty. Up, you could say it will be dusty. You could set up a permanent 
infrastructure and it's okay if you like need to take a break or something and then mm -hmm. you can like leave supplies there and then come back and find those supplies and build stuff up mm -hmm. but the south pole uh is in particular interesting because it's both the darkest place that's accessible on the moon obviously the um night side is dark but it's not the same as the far side mm -hmm. the far side sees daylight uh just like the near side so does so the south pole of the moon has craters that are permanently shadowed but the walls of those craters get almost direct sunlight so mm -hmm. you can put some solar panels there get nice direct sunlight and then in those permanently shadowed regions the temperatures are cold which is important because that's where there might be ice. Oh, okay. So one of the big things for long-term exploration of any place is being able to have resources there. So that includes light. So being able to put solar panels in these really um, high illumination areas, but also then maybe be able, being able to use the in-situ resources mm -hmm. um, like ice and mine it and use it for water, but for, for fuel, all mm -hmm. of these different uh, purposes. I do want to talk about that, but let's take one step back. It's, sure. been, it's been 50 years since we've been to the moon yep. with people, but we've had different missions there before. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the science that we've already gathered about the moon and what we know about it yes. in those half a century since the Apollo astronauts? Yeah, one of the crazy things is we actually haven't had any, the U.S. has not had any surface uh, rovers or any surface exploration since the Apollo missions. Um, there's some more recent Chinese rovers that have gotten some really cool science back that have gone to some very different sites on the lunar surface. Um, most of NASA's assets have been orbital. Um, and then we did crash a thing into mm -hmm. the moon a couple times. Which is important. Which is also super cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, that's yeah that's provided some of the clues about the water uh presence in the south polar region yeah. and and wasn't know, that the one that it crashed and then the orbiter kind of looked to see what it kicked up right see yeah. the plume and spectrally yeah. measure what's there and there are other orbital instruments neutron spectrometers that indicate there's a lot of hydrogen buried in that dirt mm -hmm. that hydrogen is probably locked up with oxygen molecules so uh, oxygen atoms so you've got water molecules and water is is burnt rocket fuel and you can use your electricity from your solar panels to unburn it mm -hmm. put the hydrogen in one tank oxygen in the other and you're good, and to, you're go. good to go good to go good to go the uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter has been orbiting the moon for something a like long time 15 mm -hmm. years now maybe mm -hmm. 10 to 15 um, and so it's returned a lot of this data that's both just visual data so all those really cool images we have of that are high resolution images mm -hmm. of the craters and, and different areas on the moon. Um, and then some of this neutron data and some other wavelengths like UV light that give us lots of information about all of the different features on the moon, where we might want to go if we're exploring with robots or humans. There, there are big scientific questions still about the moon. Okay. You know, yeah. so uh, we learned a tremendous amount from those Apollo missions. Mm -hmm. uh, the motivations for Apollo were probably not purely scientific as we all know. Mm -hmm. But it was tremendously helpful scientifically. Those samples, especially the later missions, right? The later missions yeah. as well. Those samples w enabled us to learn a lot. And it's after the Apollo missions that the idea that the moon formed following a giant impact onto the Earth, which created a giant disk around the Earth from which the moon accreted, that we had the data to really show that that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we've been talking about these orbital missions highlighting the possible presence of significant quantities of water ice in the southern hemisphere. One thing uh, in the southern polar region, one thing that, that uh, Addy is in particular interested in and that we've done some research on is 
the behavior of that dust on the surface, mm -hmm. which is a technical concern for returning to the moon and the Apollo missions and the precursors even of Apollo indicated some weird physics going on with dust on the surface of the moon and so there have been some additional studies mm -hmm. of that dust particles lifting off the surface of the moon mm -hmm. uh, and so there have been measurements uh, looking for that and trying to quantify it with mm -hmm. some of these orbiters. Before we have to deal with that dust and finding the water. Mm -hmm. We have to get astronauts to the moon, we right? Do. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of those challenges. Because right now, you know, getting to low Earth orbit seems relatively routine at this point. Uh, it's yeah. We'll say it's scheduled, okay. not routine. Um, so we've seen, you know, countless astronauts go to the space station and come back home safe. Mm -hmm. This is going to be very different than it that. Be. What are some of the challenges of getting to the moon? It's, it's far away, right? Quarter of a million miles away? It's yeah, I mean, there's there's the distance in miles. It doesn't take a it's a couple days or something mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to get there. So that's not it's such like a getting big through deal. the parking lot here, right? <laughs> exactly. <That's> right. <laughs> uh, Might be actually faster. Not sure. There's a there's the energy penalty. So it takes a certain amount of energy to get to low Earth orbit. It takes about thirty or forty percent more energy to get to the moon, which cuts down on how much stuff of the what fraction of the rocket actually gets to where you're going. Yeah. So you, so you have sort to have of a bigger rocket if you're going to take the same size capsule, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. You have, have a much bigger rocket and much more it, fuel. And until we get that rocket fuel processing going on the South Pole of the Moon, like Addie was talking about, you got to take all the fuel you need to get home. And it takes more fuel to get home from the moon mm -hmm. than it does from low Earth Because you probably do want to come back, right? For the most part, I people do. I would definitely want to there come back. There are some folks not who would be happy, but <laughs> not much to do there, right? There. No, <laughs> the theaters aren't running, yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so currently we can get to low Earth orbit. Getting to the moon, again, it'll take about three days. Um, you have to worry about not only, like, the fuel to get there, but also the resources. You're going to stay there for some amount of time. We're used to taking our, like, freeze-dried food and stuff like that to the astronauts on the space mm -hmm. station, and we can potentially send sort of, like, un- crude cargo pods or something ahead of time to mm -hmm. once we're sort of more there more sustainably um, but there's also some factors that we don't consider as much when we're in low earth orbit like radiation mm -hmm. um, that will be much more of a factor on the moon it's still overall better than like if we're going to mars right um, because you are in the earth's magnetic field part of the time but there's some really interesting physics that happens when you're in and out of the earth's magnetic field which happens when you're on the moon you have to go up above the radiation belts um, which sort of protect us here on Earth. And mm -hmm. so you are exposed to a lot more radiation if you're going to the moon. Which is not a good thing, right? And no. Nothing good no. comes yeah. out of it, despite what we read in the comic books. It's not a very <laughs> yeah. good eventually, thing, right? eventually, they may want to be building hobbit holes yeah. on the moon to it's true, protect... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. having little hobbit holes and little... Uh, use use that lunar dirt to protect you from that radiation. There we, yeah. go. there we go. Let's talk about the dirt. Let's okay. talk about the lunar dirt, because yes. I know this is your, your expertise here. So what makes lunar dirt, which you scientists call regolith, which I love, mm -hmm. and I've been using it Good. more frequently Excellent. now. Um, what makes regolith. that <laughs> Hashtag regolith. What makes it different than the dirt that we have here on Earth? Sure. So the d the dust and the dirt on the moon, the regolith, is just broken up bits of rock. So in that way, it's a lot like what we have here on Earth, except that on the moon, there's no atmosphere. There's no water processes, right? There's none of that stuff that's going to sort of process the dirt, and there's not organics. So most of the things that make dirt, like soil, that we think of here on Earth, is going to be like organic material. So you can think more of like sort of sand um, in that it's just this really broken up bits of rock. Um, without any organics in it, but it's sand is very round. 
because it gets turned over by ocean waves, it gets turned by wind blowing it. Um, and so that makes it pretty rounded and smooth, but on the moon, just like broken up bits of rock are very sharp and jagged and they have really weird structures and there's weird glassy components and weird iron components that make it actually pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can uh, be in like really, really, <clears throat> really, really tiny particles and it can just be like really jagged. So it's an interesting um, like physical problem that can get into spacesuits and mechanical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, it also like, Josh mentioned earlier, it does seem to move around a little bit, probably due to electric fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, or just astronauts driving around or things landing on the surface that can kick up dust and then it lands on your solar panels. Mm-hmm. So it can cause all sorts of interesting problems. Josh, did we learn most of this stuff from those Apollo missions with them bringing those samples back? Well, there was, there was actually some interesting uh, theories before the Apollo missions landed on the moon about what exactly that dusty surface would be like um, but yeah, we have that stuff. Uh, it's not a shocking surprise that it's more jagged, you know, because as Addy was saying, we knew there was no erosion. We know there's no wind and rain. Um, but some of the things that we saw, we learned from those samples. There's this stuff called nanophase iron that Addy alluded to that's very reactive and can be uh, a problem. There's a recent experiment about growing little plants mm-hmm. in some lunar regolith. And that nanophase iron attacks the oh. roots and can be sort of damaging to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things is like when you when you break a rock or you break anything, there's a lot of sort of energy still left over. It's like sort of free energy on the surface is sort of the way to think of it. And so on Earth, then it reacts with like the atmosphere and stuff like that. But if you just sort of have that, um, when the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts were there, they inhaled uh, regolith when they like brought it back into their capsule and mm-hmm. they said it smelled like gunpowder. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, no, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, maybe that's not a smell we want in our enclosed <laughs> <Tiny> capsule. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it, 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 that smell has to do with how it's reacting. The, huh. the, the minerals and the chemicals are reacting in the nasal passage like with your organic matter. That sounds absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it's not, yeah it's that's not, not good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, the, the dust is a huge problem. NASA is spending a lot of effort trying to understand how to control it, not just on the chemical side, but the mechanical side. Like Addie said, it's very abrasive and right. it's very sticky. Sand, you know, you can mm-hmm. brush it off like this. This stuff, no, if you do that, you're going to just start making cuts and grooves in your spacesuit material. Which is not good as well. Not a good right. thing. Yeah. And also I have to imagine... We're just trying to find ways to scare you. Yeah, oh yeah, space is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> talking to you guys for all these years. <laughs> <laughs> That's University of Central Florida physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell speaking with me from the floor of Megacon last week. More from that conversation is just ahead, or check out the entire conversation. I'll post the video on our website, wmfe.org slash yet. Megacon, Mega Rockets, and the science of lunar exploration. More from the floor of Megacon when Are We There Yet returns just ahead here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. On May 22nd, Are We There Yet? headed out to Megacon Orlando, a massive convention for comic book and sci-fi fans. We spoke with University of Central Florida physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. Our conversation about NASA's moon exploration plans continues. uh, It's got to be tough to land on the surface, right? Because you're you're kicking up all this stuff, and it sounds like this is nasty stuff. You don't want this hitting your spacecraft, right? What what are some of the, the concerns about landing in these 
tiny pieces of glass, basically. Yeah, there's uh, there were a number of challenges when they land when the Apollo astronauts landed, and some of our um, there's some really cool videos from some of the more recent uh, lunar landers, like the Chinese lander, of, uh, of these big dust plumes that get kicked up. Um, and there's some really cool technology that's being tested right now with um, different. Uh, aerospace engineering companies like Mastin and Blue Origin that are testing like landing technologies all actually. So you can't just use visible light most of the time. You can't just use a camera because that dust is going to kick Can't get see through it, up. right? You can't see through it. So, so there's some techniques with radar you can use or millimeter wave that can see through the dust a little bit better and help you land. Because you don't want to land like on a boulder or in a crater either because that could be dangerous for your landing system. And eventually, you know, on the theme of in-situ resource utilization, there is a lot of research going into, okay, can we bulldoze the lunar dirt and process it in such a way that we make a landing pad mm -hmm. yeah. and just, you know, concretize that lunar that's regolith a into, concretize. A, know, into a nice, <laughs> that big, is cool. solid slab yeah. that's not as dusty. So then when it's landing, you've got a nice, clean, mm -hmm. flat, level uh, yeah. thing to land on, and also you're not sending mm. huge amounts of dust at very high speeds, some of which can even make it into orbit. Oh, wow, yeah. That's and wild. then and potentially pose a problem for your orbiting <laughs> assets, <laughs> you know, the lunar gateway yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Concretize. I you scientists are great at making up verbs. Yeah, we need to make yeah. a, <laughs> we, need to, we need to patent something called the concretizer. Okay. Concretization of the moon, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, because you, I mean, that, that's an interesting point, because I mean, we have a launch and landing infrastructure here on Earth, but you've got to bring all that stuff with you if you yeah. want it there or utilize it while you're there. In situ resource utilization, right? Yeah. That's going to be a key element for any sort of long-term establishment on the moon. On the moon mm -hmm. and beyond. So yeah. there's yes. lots of ISRU interest in asteroids and then obviously on Mars and mm -hmm. things like that too. Let's talk about what we know. Let's concretize uh, this conversation <laughs> here. Um, and it doesn't work as well that way. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. It's fine. Uh, let's, let's talk about the plan uh, moving okay. forward. We got Artemis plan. Uh, we've got a launch coming up hopefully this year of, of, of the first of, of many missions to the moon. What is our overall plan? Yeah, so the first, so there's going to be a, um, un, there's a couple of uncrewed uh, flights, maybe just one before. One uncrewed one flight. One uncrewed mm -hmm. flight and then a crewed flight that That's will. orbital. That will be an orbital flight that will sort of go to the moon and come back. Um, those flight, that flight actually is going to take some CubeSats, so small spacecraft with it that'll sort of drop off, and a couple are going to study the moon. There are a few that are doing other sort of deep space CubeSats are fascinating pieces of technology, yeah, right? These tiny yeah. little satellites that, that do yeah, a lot of cool sort of science. Yeah, the size of a Kleenex box often, um, and you can do some, I mean, we've built some CubeSats, you can do some really cool science with them. Um, but so those are the, the first sort of exploratory missions, and then we will, in a couple of years, um, <laughs> land, hopefully, some astronauts on the lunar surface. Um, in the meantime, we're also sending a lot of uncrewed vehicles. So the CLPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload System. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I think so. I think that's that. We can ask the NASA people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Check us. But those are a lot of scientific instruments and technology demonstration instruments that are going to sort of go ahead of the Artemis uh, astronauts to explore the surface and see... Um, what, what is there, maybe where we're going to pick our landing sites, mm -hmm. what other interesting science there is to be done. And I think the timeline, so we're the in t end of 2022, the first uncrewed flight, sometime in 2023 then, a uh, hopefully in 2023, a crewed flyby of the moon. But they're not talking about landing until 2024. Or 25, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. 2025 now, yeah. And the capsule of the Artemis uh, the SLS is the Orion crew capsule. 
which is a nicer, bigger Apollo style mm-hmm. gumdrop capsule. Much nicer toilet, I've been told. In, oh yeah. In the uh, Orion I think capsule. The, I think the <laughs> Apollo capsules were toilet free. <laughs> they were. <laughs> they, were yes. they were bags. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but it doesn't include the lander. Mm-hmm. Right. So then there's a whole other thing about getting down to the moon and back up off the surface of the moon. So that's part of the complication of it. And but it's also, I think, related to the idea, hopefully, that we're going in a more permanent ongoing basis this time than just a race to get there and accomplish mm-hmm. the task. Yeah. And the, the landers are being there's a couple that have been um, sort of proposed but the landers are being designed by not NASA, right? So there are other companies. Um, currently, Starship, I think, mm-hmm. is the lander that's been selected um, the, just as a lander. For the first two or yeah. something two like that, missions. yeah. Um, and, and the good thing about that is is that there are a lot more commercial companies being involved these days. So it's not just NASA. Um, and really, it's never been just NASA, right? NASA yeah. always has contractors that build Orion and things like that. Um, but there's a lot more buy-in and a lot more sort of commercial interest that's going to help us, I think, continue this motion to Mm -hmm. go to the moon. And there's a lot of international interest as well. And public interest as well. People are really excited about this stuff that's happening. Seeing Starship, which is this very tall, sort of Flash (laughs) Gordon-esque rocket set down on the surface of the moon, is very, very different look than the Apollo uh, lunar uh, module. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I mean, it, it, it's going to be, that's going to be very, very interesting. It's going to be very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It'll some be very the, cool to see. Yeah, some of the other proposed landers look more Apollo-esque, sort of but, bigger, yes, and, yeah. but more Apollo-esque. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You mentioned it's important that we have a permanent base on, on the moon. Um, so I'm going to ask two scientists, why is that so important? Why, why don't we, or why can't we just use the resources that we have, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, some of these other missions? Why is having a sustained scientific base on the moon such a big deal well i think there there are two elements to the importance of having an ongoing presence there one is if we are going to continue to have human spaceflight exploration at all that is the place to set up your base of operations the surface of the earth is a terrible starting point (laughs) because its gravity is so large and lifting what you need off the surface of the earth is just uh, got a huge energy penalty So if you can establish a permanent sort of infrastructure on the surface of the moon, where we know there are the raw materials for rocket fuel and things like that, getting off the surface of the moon to go to other places, uh, asteroids or Mars, is much easier energetically. That's sort of a human exploration Mm -hmm. question more than... Like a gas station close by, right? It's maybe even more than a gas station. It's really your base camp. Think of of exploring Everest. You know, you you go to your base camp and you've got all your stuff there and you start from from there. So the moon is a great base camp for exploration of the solar system. And along those lines, it's also important to be able to show that we can do that sort of long-term habitation and, and building up infrastructure and stuff on the moon because it is only right three days away Mm -hmm. um it's close enough that we can get humans back sort of in more emergency situations the Mm -hmm. communications delays aren't as big as they will be to like go to mars for instance right the trip to mars is much longer doing things on the surface is going to take a lot more infrastructure um and it's harder to get humans back right so like being able to sort of do this long term on the moon is a great way to show that we can sort of move out from the earth as well Gotcha. And scientifically. But then from the science side. Why are you excited right. about it? Well, I mean, for even when I was a kid, people were dreaming about putting big telescopes on the moon. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're been talking about James Webb Space Telescope as the latest great space observatory. And one of the important things about having a telescope in space is it doesn't have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. Your telescope on the moon also doesn't have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. And it's a, it's a place you can go to and you can build the thing and come back, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just pretty stable. much easier to build, you know, if you've, if you've got a place, you can add stuff to it mm -hmm. than if it's out in deep space. We're never going to go back to James Webb. It's had, you know, it had all these overruns and delays because it had to be perfectly right. Because you couldn't the first go time fix it. Because yeah. that's it. It's in space and it's done. Uh, but you could build a huge telescope on the moon, a lot of different sorts of telescopes, and uh, at least... In principle, you could do some interferometry mm -hmm. with telescopes on the moon and telescopes on the Earth. Interferometry is connecting different telescopes together, Connecting right? telescopes yeah. and using them as a giant single telescope. So a telescope on the moon and telescopes in space uh, linked together uh, could create gigantic uh, telescopes, oh, which cool. would provide... A completely new window on the universe. Yeah, there's a and there's been some proposals for a long time to put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. So when we're on the Earth, we can't like observe in the UV because the, our atmosphere blocks it. We can observe radio waves on Earth, but also on Earth, you may have noticed we produce a lot mm -hmm. of radio yeah. waves. So we're noisy. My bad. Yes. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> um, but at a lot of different wavelengths, right? So mm -hmm. um, like phones and TV and stuff, all of that is radio wavelengths. Um, so there's a lot of noise. There's trying a to... lot of noise. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of really interesting science that we still can't do. But if you go to the far side of the moon, the moon itself blocks most of the noise from uh, the Earth. And so you can actually uh, do some really cool radio science mm -hmm. and look back in like the history of the universe. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And wasn't there a, an idea to turn a crater on the moon into a telescope, right? Could you do yeah. something like that? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of analogous to what the Arecibo mm -hmm. uh, telescope was. Find a natural landform that sort of provides you a good... Uh, base for for a, a big radio dish. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then there's also a lot of really interesting science of the moon. So if we go there, we can use we can explore the rocks that are there, um, and those tell, can tell us a lot about the history of the solar system, the history of the Earth, because um, the moon is sort of a, a witness plate. So the moon's been there right next to the Earth for a really long time. So all the things that the moon has experienced, the Earth has experienced too, but the Earth has tectonic plates and weather and things that erase all the his that history but the moon it's just there it's, it's a history on book the surface. Of, of us yeah right. exactly Pretty cool. uh, so we yeah. can see how, like how long it's been bombarded by things we can see if there's been um like changes in how that's changed over history we can look at the types of rocks there are throughout and so it's it's a really great way to understand the earth and the solar system mm. history there's a, a big you know on this bombardment history there's still this big open question about whether or not and to what extent there may have been a surge in cratering a few hundred million years after the formation of the planets and the moon is the great witless plate, as, as Addy was saying, to try to disentangle that. That was University of Central Florida physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell speaking with me from Megacon Orlando. We talked a bit more about the moon and how what we learn on the lunar surface can help get us to Mars. The entire conversation is on our website at wmfe.org slash are we there yet? And we should mention UCF is a financial supporter of this podcast. That's going to do it for this week's show. A huge thanks to Chuck and Shauna Lindsay from chuckloadofcomics.com for producing both the audio and video podcast from the floor of Megacon. 
Chuck, Lindsay, thank you so much. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.